I didn't say you were a super fluid. You said that. Those are your words. Welcome to the Hormesis Podcast. Welcome back. First, I'd like to take an opportunity to thank everybody who has been listening to the podcast and encourage you to spread it to your friends, spread it to your coworkers and your, your fellow students. Um, we really appreciate those of you who've come onto the Reddit and interacted with us. We've been trying our best. We're all very busy right now. Um, not that that's going to change anytime soon, but uh, we're trying to get on there at least once or twice a week and uh, respond to comments and talk to people and, and get back to them with uh, our thoughts and feedback. Um, it's been really encouraging to us to see the level of interaction and the number of people who are, are starting to look at it. So, I'm really excited about this podcast and I'm really excited about the positive feedback we've gotten so far. And it's been really fun for me reading all the comments on Reddit and I'm looking forward to more of them. It's fun interacting with the community and getting everyone's opinions. As a way to thank you one more time for interacting with us, both on Twitter and on Reddit, we would like to extend the opportunity to get a free Hormesis podcast sticker. If you just interact with us, either by tweeting at us or retweeting us with a comment or posting a comment on our Reddit page, we will reach out, ask you for your address, and send you a free sticker. We look forward to seeing you online soon. Can't wait to hear more from you guys. But I don't do much social media, so you probably won't hear much from me. I love all the opinions, though. Good, bad, everything. People that agree, especially people that don't agree, because my biggest philosophy in life is, like, you don't learn anything by only talking to people who agree with you. So Agreed. Andrea's definitely not a snowflake. So before we move on, thank you very much to all of you and come check us out at hormesispodcast.com and on Reddit at reddit slash r slash hormesispodcast. We'd really like to see you there. So today what we wanted to talk about was IT and information technology and medical physics. Um, what we're drawing from is mostly our clinical experience. There is a report from the task group 201. T- yep. From WAPM task group 201. It's that, more of a working group that they call it. Was it a working group? But it was task group report. It, it does say TG201, but they call themselves a working group in the report. Well, they, they have a working group as well. Uh, they right. continue. The working group continues to tackle issues of IT in radiation oncology. And specifically, the report was on information technology and radiation oncology. Um, And so while we're drawing some from that report, what we're sort of talking about today is um, the role of medical physics and in IT and the role of IT in radiation oncology. So really what is information technology? It's kind of where we got to start with this. It's dealing with computer systems, right? It's not just dealing with the computer that's sitting on your desktop at your work. It's dealing with how all the computer systems interact. It's dealing with the networking infrastructure that communicates with them, that they use to communicate with other computer systems. It's all of that. It's dealing with the data redundancy for all of that. It's dealing with communicating between disparate systems and disparate resources. And as you can imagine, that's a lot of knowledge and a lot of expertise that's required to make that work. And so what we kind of want to talk about is where does the working group see that medical physics fits in that? And the report we're drawing from is about 10 years old. And so you can imagine that a lot in computer technology has changed 
since then, and certainly a lot in the way radiation oncology uses computers has changed, even in that 10-year span. So what new things can we add to what that report says, and what are our clinical experiences with that? So Sean, why don't you tell me a bit about what your feeling is, what should we know about IT as medical physicists? Well, one, you should know their names. I think I think that uh, one of the things that we've um, both kind of come across is we know a few people in the IT department at each of our hospitals who help us not only help administrate our own systems, but help us secure resources, help us make sure that we are integrated appropriately into their network, help us make sure that our systems are secure from threats. Uh, I think that's one major thing that's evolved since the time that that report in 2009 came out. They talked a little bit about HIPAA in that, which is another huge portion of what IT is doing. They're making sure that we have HIPAA compliance, but they're nowadays they've they've got to fight a lot of malware, and that may not be the front and center thought on a lot of the software designers who are providing the products that we use. So it's I think it's an interesting time to to be talking about this because we're starting to see people pivot and attack healthcare information as a as a way to get data breaches. Um, so knowing that knowing your IT person's name, because they save your butt more times in a day than you realize. <laughs> I think that's the first step that a medical physicist should do. Shout out to Mike at Upstate. <laughs> yeah, so, so, but that brings up the question then of how much is the responsibility of a physicist in IT infrastructure handling and, and dealing with information technology issues and how much is the uh, responsibility of IT directly? And I think the working group had in the report a good way of uh, imagining this using IT terminology where like IT is going to be responsible for certainly the desktop hardware. And we're not going to be as physicists, we don't want to be doing uh, desktop support for people's installation of Excel and dealing with their reports. Right. But we do want to have some sort of authority over what's going on with our machines and the way that that data goes around. And the uh, termed it in the report is that medical physicists should be the application owner, that we have final decision in the things that happen. Not that we have to micromanage what goes on with it, but that all decisions related to at least what they call medical device tier systems, things like your linear accelerator and how it deals with IT and things like your oncology information system, the medical physicist should be the, you know, person who has either direct authority on what goes in and out of it, or at least is on the panel and has a voice, a strong voice, a leadership role in that. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that the, this task group report talks a lot about is they talk about the interplay between an ROIT professional. And so, you know, the report is very focused on radiation oncology, but I think you can easily generalize that to radiology, to PACs, to anybody who needs a computer to do their job in the hospital, you know, if they're doing a technical job. You have somebody there who is very familiar with your applications, at least in their requirements and what their basic function is. They don't need to know what every button does, but their their main, their main specialty is knowing how computers work and knowing how the hospital has set up its network and set up its um, its resources, just what you were saying earlier. And that synergy between the ROIT, that's what I'm going to call that person from now on for the rest of the podcast, even though it's general, 
um, the ROIT professional and the medical physicist, though that synergy there is is key because we we share skills. We don't overlap skills very often. You know, that's uh, in rare cases like maybe yourself. We do, but that's you know I think that's one of the the key points to this is that that's a team. I did want to go back. You said something about the hardware and and the hardware and desktop support. It, the, the the working group also is very clear on saying like, yeah, we definitely don't want to do that. We don't want to deal with the installation of every user. However, we also have to be familiar with the requirements of our own applications. So in Toledo, when I was there, I remember the just God tier deformable registration server you put together because it needed to be that good. We didn't want to be sitting around waiting for the system to try and figure things out for 10 minutes. We wanted it to go and then we'd have a look and we'd be the, the user would be the slowdown and yeah. making sure that that gets communicated to it is really important because an example from upstate aria changed its reporting server when they did that we started running more reports through the new system and realized we couldn't really run anything it was just too slow they'd mend out the requirements and so the thing was getting hung up and slowing everybody down when you've got 20 people trying to get in and print out a pdf yeah well i think that goes into that application owner idea on a medical device tier system. I mean, when you're talking the server or you're talking the deformal registration PAC system, you are not talking about someone's desktop system. You're talking about something that belongs in that medical device tier, that, that this is something that physics has the expertise to speak or should have the expertise to speak on what is important for it and what needs to be done. And the report believes that the medical physicists, and I completely agree with them, that because of our particular set of skills and that the medical physicist in the clinic is typically the most technically proficient person, and it isn't because of our training. Uh, this is a thing I want to get to later, but it's not because we're trained to be that. It's because the type of people that I think find their way into physics and then on the path to medical physics are people who like technical solutions that like, you know, you have to be a certain kind of person to enjoy physics and to follow it down the path to get you to a degree and to stay on it through medical physics and through PhD or an MS in it. And that type of person will be the kind of person that thinks about the problems that computers solve in a way that computers solve them. And most of the other people that are in the department, and this is not a detriment to their skill sets, which are critical skill sets, but they don't Treading think about lane. it in the same way. <laughs> yeah, I, you don't want to say that, oh, physicians don't understand computers. There are certainly com physicians that do understand computer systems very well and have that same sort of mindset, but that is not a mindset that they are looking for in med school admissions and that sort of thing. They're looking for a different sort of problem-solving skill set and a different way of thinking about the world than that. And so somehow it is the case that physicists have the same sort of mindset that works for IT generally. And so generally, it's the case that the physicist should be the most qualified person in the clinic to recognize where the technology is meeting with the clinical needs, because we've got the clinical understanding what's going on there. And we generally have the technical understanding, at least to the point where we know how computers are being used in the clinic. 
and that is our goal. We are the interface to real IT, the ROIT or whatever, the, the hospital level IT to deal with that connection to tell them what the business requirements are. Yeah, we're the interface to the actual professionals. Which, you know, I mean, let's let's take a step back almost because you mentioned this, like that's not our training. That's not our training at all to understand what goes on in these computer systems. And and one of the challenges that I think we butt up against is that we are so heavily reliant on them in everyday clinical practice. So if you run into a problem where like, for example, I've got a I've got a computer tower right now that refuses to burn images to disk. I I don't know why, but it does every time, you know. I'm the person that needs to figure that out. <laughs> you know, I'm the first person who gets called when that problem arises. And we, through sort of trial and error and on-the-job experience, and, uh, you know, I mean, that's how we get the exposure to this side of it. And some of us are lucky enough to have a, a little bit more background. One of the other parts that this, this working group report brought up was remote work the ability to set up remote desktop protocols that can get through very secure firewalls and uh, VNC connections and remote viewing stations so that we can make sure that our physicians can see things that they need to see when they're far away, because sometimes they are. You know, I, it, we have to be really familiar with that. We've got to be able to, to set up those systems and know how to install that software and know what limitations are hospital design has placed so that, you know, for example, I can't set up a VNC server anywhere within my, within my facility. They've just shut it down. So when people talk about, well, can you have remote viewing? Well, you can use RDP, which, you know, Microsoft had to patch urgently a couple months ago, but you can't use VNC viewing stuff. The physicians come to us with that question and say, how can we get this next task done we're the first level triage for that. And if something more needs to happen, then we have to either look for a commercial solution or we turn to our IT department and say, what can we, what can we do to make this better? So knowing, knowing enough about it and how we get trained in that, I, I feel like that was a serious deficiency in the academic type of program that we went through understanding how computers talk to each other, how a lot of this stuff gets folded in. Like, what is a DICOM transfer receive protocol? Like, I don't think we ever discussed that explicitly in a class. Like, this is how DICOM works. This is how SCP works. Whereas, you know, once you start doing it in the clinic, you quickly realize what is happening. And you can ask people around who've been around for a little while and you understand a little bit more about it. But it's it's sort of an oral tradition. <laughs> yeah. Um, that idea of the training is something that the working group specifically brought up that mm -hmm. that the IT training should be part of if if we are going to serve this role in the department not everyone is at the same level there needs to be some level of training on how computers work and not just the on the job training that it has been and right now there are standards for the curriculum in residency for informatics to do some of that training but there should, I don't know that the residency is the only place that this should be. I think that mm. it is unfortunate that the CAMPEP, the CAMPEP has just released in March of 2019, new core graduate curriculum requirements, and it still does not have anything relating to information technology, to um, programming, anything related to 
the things well, you have that this to know how many bits mentions. are in a CT scan. That's but that's about it. And it's uh, you know, yeah, it's it's sad because when you you know, a residency guideline is is great, but what that still has to be is broad enough so that most people can meet the standard. And so there's not going to be a lot of very specific things like you have to understand the ins and outs of what DICOM means. Uh, DICOM, for those of you who don't know, Digital Image Communications in Medicine. Is that correct? I believe that's Um, correct. Which I want to plug NEMA for this. The standard is an open standard. Everyone who uses the DICOM standard has to publish how they're using it. And NEMA publishes all of the information about the bits of the standard so anyone can figure it out that's not true for a lot of standards that we deal with so this has been i think a huge boon to our field that nema made that decision early on and that this is a standard the industry adopted because it has made everything about dealing with radiation oncology data easier sorry carry on yeah so so yeah i mean dicom's a huge part of any hospital's workings and, and kind of hand in hand with that goes a PAC system or a, the picture archiving and communication system. Effectively, it's where all of your images go. So when you go to this, the hospital and you get a CT scan, it goes to PACs and anybody in the hospital who has access to any images whatsoever can go into PACs and pull those images up. And because it's all in a DICOM standard format and all the readers are DICOM compliant, they can all view those images. Now, some of them have more functionality than the standard requires than others, but you have the same basic communication. And I think it's hard for us to recognize how truly amazing that is, that a CT scan is a CT scan is, uh, is a CT scan. It doesn't matter what continent you're on. It doesn't matter what, what software you're using. You will get the same raw information because of that standard and because of these these archive systems, they're all organized in a way that you can find them easily and you can set up searches so that you don't even have to leave your desk. You don't have to go to radiology to figure out, well, how many scans has this person had? And can I get the print of those films and stuff like that? So, so us having that type of appreciation and, and across all modalities, it's not a CT specific thing. It's ultrasound, it's MRI, it's PET scans, it's SPECT scans, you know, just all that stuff goes in there and it's, it's a pretty amazing bit of uh, of software. I just want to say it's not it's amazing and it was designed to be amazing. It was intentionally constructed with that openness and that is the reason that it is so ubiquitous. Yeah. It wouldn't be if it was allowed to accidentally grow. Yeah. And and we see that actually in some of the treatment planning softwares that we we use. We see people not necessarily deviate from the DICOM conformance. They, they have DICOM, DICOM conformance statements, but they don't make it easy sometimes to bring in outside information in the same way. So if you have an RT dose set, for, for example, you know, you may not be able to manipulate that RT dose set, but some systems make it easier for you to pull that into your, into your uh, planning system and view that in combination with what you're currently planning on delivering. And that can make huge differences in treatment decisions. And we don't have that same level of uniformity across the field of vendors, uh, at least on the radiation oncology side. Uh, And I know for a lot of things in diagnostic radiology that are cutting edge, so more advanced MR methodologies, um, some of the 
um, digital subtraction and geography studies that are being done. They generate these 3D model studies um, that can be used for aneurysms or AVMs. And those don't transfer across different platforms. So the original base data, like you said, it was designed to be universal and it was designed to be ubiquitous. And we're starting to diverge from that as we become more reliant on technology because the vendors don't want us to be able to just change out and say, well, eh, you know, Phillips, you were doing really good for me for a little while, but I like what you can bring to the table. I could still see it using the Siemens system over here. So I'm going to go to the Siemens this time because they're giving me a better deal. They want you to have that sort of reliance on them. And and I think that's something we kind of need to push back on as we... Like, like one of There's our, no kind of about it. Yeah, yeah. So, like, but we're we're obviously not the ones driving that change. We're not driving that innovation, but we are the ones who are presenting a lot of this data. Um, Kent Ogden, again, I I really hope that Kent is listening to this podcast at this point. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure that he has it. I'm gonna bring them all on a thumb drive. He just got back from Toronto. He got back from a Siemens users meeting, and he was just stunned. He was stunned by the. Uh, amount of new technology that's coming in the field of CT. But he was saying that a lot of this is going to be sort of so game-changing that we need to start looking at the DICOM standards to modify them. Otherwise, nobody else is going to be able to see it. And so how do we make sure that that DICOM standard continues to be updated? I know there are working groups. I know that NEMA is on top of it and trying to to keep up with this, but the, the vendors are at such a rapid pace of development that it's hard to make those same types of standards be so forward-looking that all the new integrations, like ultrasound for prostate biopsy, for example, um, the new uh, there's a new variant software out that does prostate biopsy ultrasound. I'm not endorsing that. I don't think it's the only one out there. It's the only one that I'm familiar with right now because I just got back from the American Brachytherapy Society meeting and I saw it. In order to make a 3D image using ultrasound, they have to export their images as MRIs according to a DICOM standard so that it will automatically be uh, brought into a DICOM viewer as a 3D sequenced image because ultrasound doesn't have that in its standard. NEMA just didn't foresee that being the case because they didn't know the ins and outs of the details of the use of a transrectal ultrasound for seed implants or prostate biopsies. So, you know, these, these are just examples of how us being aware of these uses and being that application specialist, we need to be on the forefront of calling for these changes and making sure that these updates are being made to the standards and being made to, to our to our vendors and let them know like, hey, you also need to push for this because I don't want to be stuck in five years when I need to make a new decision and I can only go one way. So, so yeah, that's, we're the innovators. (laughs) Yeah. So what we, many of the advances that have been made in radiation oncology delivery have been made through technologies spearheaded by medical physics. I don't think that that's unreasonable to say that treatment techniques, things like stereotactic are made possible by having medical physics be able to give you a machine that can deliver precise radiation. You wouldn't have done that before you could be confident that you're going to hit where you're pointing and you're not going to overdose critical structures nearby. And those sorts of advancements were driven by technology from vendors, driven by research from medical physics. And 
that technology component is kind of what we're talking about here. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk back more to the in-the-clinic side of technology and medical physics and talk a bit about the, the sorts of things that you, like common misconceptions, if you will, uh, in IT and how it relates to the clinic. My biggest one is the idea of backups versus RAID. And I know that there was a uh, WAPM presentation, I'm sorry, in 2018 at the annual meeting that brought this up and reiterating that backups. So I, I should explain what these things are. Backups, that's things like tape backups where you make a copy of the data, right? You're copying it from one place to another. And the legal requirements are actually that uh, hospitals back up their ecology medical or their medical record systems, not just to a local site, but that they have a backup some distance away. I think seven miles is the minimum to deal with catastrophic failure uh, of the local site because there are legal requirements on how long data has to be retained. And that is how they ensure that it is retained. And that's what a backup is, right? It's, it's making a copy that can't be messed up. Are you saying that a backup would be something so that you could retrieve your data if, say, your local nuclear power plant exploded? Well, that's so there there is uh, the report actually makes mention of uh, things like Louisiana, right, with the Hurricane Katrina and the having backups that are far enough away and in a safe enough location that they can survive catastrophic events is part of what's considered. But a lot of people think of RAID as a backup as well. Uh, RAID is literally, it's an a acronym redundant array of independent disks. It is literally, you take a bunch of hard drives, put them in one computer system or on a SAN, a, a storage attached network, and you make the computer pretend that that's one hard drive where it's either putting multiple copies of the data on each drive or it's doing things where it puts a little bit of data on each drive with a checksum or multiple checksums so that it can read the data and make sure that it's all right. Could you could you pause for a second and explain what a checksum is? Because I feel like this is this is something that's really important when we start talking a little bit more about radiation treatment delivery and radiation uh, data transfers and so let's let's set the groundwork for what a checksum is. Certainly. So the checksum the original idea comes right from the name. It's a sum of the bits that checks that are right. It's If you think of uh, the original checksum would be like the parity bit in data transmission on serial lines. You would have a bunch of ones and zeros, and then it would be the last one or zero would be determined by if all of the adding up ones and zeros gave you an even number, it would be a zero. If adding them all up gave you an odd number, it would be a one. And it was just a sum of all the bits to check that you didn't have a odd number of data transmission errors. That Yeah, I was going to say that only has a 50-50 chance of working, right? So, Well, you have to have some... No, it's not a 50-50 chance. It's in those nine bits, let's say, that were transmitted. You have to have had the occurrence of a data bit flip twice. And so it's the probability times the probability. That ain't 50-50 if your original probability of a data flip, ha uh, a bit flip happening was one in 10,000. And then the probability of having two happen would be one in 10,000 times one in 10,000. So you can assume that your transmission... 
uh, likelihood of having two is significantly lower. And so, but this all goes well, into not, the. You're not going to do the math live for us? I mean, you can carry the one, right? Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't, I have my shoes on. I can't count that high. So that's the original thought of checksum. It's checking the sum of things. Uh, there are a lot more advanced algorithms that, you know, you could imagine in that same system, like you say, you could have two flips and that's wrong, or you could have a bit flip, flip spaces and that's wrong, um, but that system would think it's fine. So, you know, we've come up with a lot better ways of calculating a smaller number than all of the data that is based on the data that a little change in any place in the data that you're creating a checksum on creates a large change in the value of the checksum. Uh, and checksums are a huge part of information technology. It's a huge part of what makes computer systems that we use work at all. So, I mean, the idea of checksums is integral into how encryption works and things like that because you're relying on creating uh, hashes of values which are like a checksum they're just condensing a bunch of data down into a thing that changes seemingly randomly with the change in input data so that's the idea of a checksum and like you say that's critical for things like um, treatment plans what you want to do when you've got a treatment plan you've created a DICOM file that is exactly what you want to treat. And you have to repeat that fifth, uh, 42 times on the patient. You want to make sure that all 42 of those times, it's the same file that gets loaded up. So what you do is when you say, I've approved this, you have a list of parameters, you've got the file, whatever, you calculate a checksum with a good enough algorithm that it's unlikely to have a slight change in that file result in not a change in the checksum. And now you've got a number that you can easily compute on the file that you can store somewhere else that if it doesn't agree, you can say there's something wrong. You don't know what's wrong. Checksum doesn't give you that information. Uh, with RAID, when we go back to that, it can, but it at least gives you this alert that something went wrong and the likelihood that it went wrong in just the wrong way, multiple enough times so that the checksum is wrong and the data is wrong is less than the likelihood of the decay of a proton, right? Longer than the lifetime of the universe, longer than the lifetime that the universe will ever be sort of thing. So pretty confident. Now, does that answer your question? Confident. Not perfectly confident. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to push back on that. Let's go with perfectly confident with a properly designed system. Okay. How's that? As long as we don't assume a malicious actor. Making sure that you are definitely conveying the limits of your confidence in your statement. <laughs> I suppose that is what a physicist should do. But, so let's go back to RAID, right? Uh, yeah, please. That was a whole bunch of disks in some way of, of making it so that the whole reason you're doing that is if one of those disks breaks and they disks die, you've got mean time between failure of... Uh, you know, on the order of 100,000 to a couple million writes. So disks will fail and you will lose the data that's on it. What, I mean, that's why you've got backups, right? And so people think we've well, got this RAID system that lets a disk fail and you don't lose the data that's on it because it was spread around multiple disks and you can just replace the disk and you're good to go. But it isn't backup. 
RAID is an availability solution. It's a disk fails and we can replace the disk while the system is still on because computers are magic now. And you don't have to worry that that disk failed and you can keep using the system. It means that you didn't have to shut down and restore from a backup and potentially lose a little bit of data, but it isn't a backup. So, so, so how do we, how do we interact with our, with our IT colleagues to make sure that we are being backed up? I mean, that's, I think one of the key bits, right? So we, um, like our, our, our information systems, our OIS, um, our PAX systems and so on, they have actually taken over a lot of that with the advent of enterprise servers, the availability of thin client access like Citrix. That means that the, the actual databases that we're using regularly are being maintained by people with dedicated knowledge of how to do this. And so they do those backups on their own, right. which is great, right? Yeah, because they're, they're required to by law, like you pointed out. Yeah, and I think that's the way we want it. Sure, but what about something like your daily QA? Your daily warm-up stuff, which doesn't go to packs, which doesn't go to, it just goes to your, uh, the delivery record goes to your OIS, but the, the data itself. So the reason I asked that, we just had a failure of our, one of our computers that held one of our daily QA databases. Luckily, it was a power supply failure. So the hard drive was fine. And we were able to just swap that into a different computer. Lesson learned. We moved it to a network drive that IT is backing up. But it's, it's hard to do that when you're just installing software for the first time and you're going through the user manual and you're trying to figure out how the hell do I do this? And in some cases, it's actually not possible because you have to be running something like, uh, unless you coordinate with your IT person ahead of time. Because you have to be running like- I think you've hit like, the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you, okay, fine. Do you have to understand what the limitations are of what you should be doing? And I think that setting up a, a regulatory compliant backup system is not within the scope of the practice that we should be doing, right? We're, we're not IT. We should rely on the experts to do that, not least because we have enough other things to do, but they're also experts in doing that. So yeah, you're right. I think the solution of putting it on a network share that's your first step because they are typically backing that stuff and versioning that. So they'll have, you know, you can roll back if something went wrong. You can get a fix a corrupted database the next morning sort of thing. Yeah. But you're right. You have to think of those things ahead of time. And if you're dealing with a vendor that has a solution that doesn't make that easy, I guess push back against the vendor or find a solution that makes it work. There are always ways. I mean, you could do this idea of, of uh, let's say it's a vendor that says it's got to be running on the local hard drive and that's it. That's your solution. Then fine. What you do is you make a, an agreement with IT that daily backups will be run on that system and they will store those backups so that you can roll back. Or does it have to be the physical system? Is it communicating through the network? Okay, we'll make this a VM and a virtual machine and... IT will host that virtual machine and they will do snapshots, which are basically exactly like it sounds, take a picture of the system at the moment they say, and you can revert to that snapshot and it's as though no time has passed from when that was made. And you can have solutions like that for even systems where the vendor has said, we don't give you a good way of solving this problem. So I think that you're absolutely right. Communication with IT on how to do these things and an understanding that that's 
what we need. That a daily queue, for example, you don't need extremely high availability. You don't need it to be available every moment of the day without, you know, uh, five nines of uptime, right? You don't need to be right. available 99.999% of the time. You need it to be available at 7.15, 7 o'clock in the morning and at 8 when the physicist comes in to check it. I, I mean, I wish my machines had that level of uptime. Yeah. I, I think this is great. Do, do you have another point that you really wanted to make? No, I was just going to keep blabbering on. So I wanted to pivot to a, to two other other bits, and one is the inclusion of application uh, vendor application specialists. So, uh, for example, we have a vendor application specialist who deals with ROIS and was the one to identify, for example, that that report server was overly stressed because it did not it was like right at the minimum requirements for hardware. Um, and what those minimum requirements are for a, a fat client system, not an enterprise server solution, which is what we have. Where Citrix server, I guess it's not technically an enterprise server, it's a distributed Citrix server, but still. Um, you could say a virtualized remote system. Yeah, yeah. But it was, but the, the other system is its own fat client type thing, right? Because the, of the way they set it up. So can you tell me? Just a quick uh, overview. What's the difference between a thin and a fat client? You're using well, these terms. One one uses one eats a lot of salad, and the other one just eats pub food. Uh, a thin and a fat client. So a thin client is effectively just a display. So the user's interacting with the display that may run some functions locally, but nothing that's really driving the system. What you're doing instead is you're using that display to connect to... A virtual machine in many cases, just like what you were describing before, um, where that larger computer, that more capable computer is running all of the meat and potatoes. They're keeping the databases up to, up to date. They're syncing in with what uh, the main server is running and logging your clicks and sending it back and forth. So you're not running, if you run on a thin client server, when you click on a button, what's happening is, is the computer that you're sitting at is telling a server in some far off basement that could be in your institution. It could be in India. It could be in China. It could go up to the satellite and out to the moon and back that you just clicked on that button. And the computer on the other end of that is the one that's recording what that mouse click does and sending back the response. A fat client, on the other hand, is a system that is physically there. So the system that you are physically interacting with is uh, running that program locally and doing that communication after the fact. So it's it's logging what that click response should be and sending it back to you, um, and then sending that also back to if you if you're running a database type application, sending that interaction back to a database. Um, and one of the the benefits of thin clients is that you can have a lot more functionality for a lot more users uh, with a thin client because you don't need a lot of very beefy hardware to to run it. So not every computer needs to be able to run a full install 64-bit um, treatment planning system slash oncology inf information system. The downside is is that there's a little bit of lag time, and so if you if the designers aren't cognizant of what that does, then there are some interactions that are going to take you a little while. And and I think that's. That's kind of there. Whereas the the fat clients, everything's super fast generally, but the hardware typically is controlled by the vendor, 
uh, as well, the, the amount of money that your institution is going to spend on not only individual licenses, but also just pure computing power is a lot higher. So, so when I talk about thin and fat clients, the thing that I think of the most, uh, our physicians have to approve dynamic documents in our um, oncology information system. And the biggest complaint that, that we hear from them about our push to go truly electronic, because we still are not really a true electronic site, is that it takes forever to interact with the, the OIS. And it's because we have a combination of very wimpy computers. We have 32-bit all-in-ones that, you know, they, they work as thin clients, but they're not very fast. And you couple that with coding that doesn't optimize the speed for that thin client connection when it's interacting with a third-party application, namely the word processor that they've decided is the, the default for their dynamic document interface. And so when the physicians go through and, and approve their documents, if they do it every night, they'd spend about an hour a night just clicking the button, okay, next, okay, next, okay, next. Not even looking at the document, not even reviewing it. And so a lot of them just let these documents just sit for a while. And because the dates of service are recorded on them appropriately, they, they don't feel the impetus to do it. A lot of them don't understand the interaction this has with billing requirements, for example. But it's a significant time sink on them. And they're not just sitting around in their office looking for something to do. These are people who get called every five minutes to go to a different spot, who have people in our department dedicated to just keeping their schedules <laughs> and trying to keep them on schedule. And so the fact that this is a huge time sink and a huge delay if they were actually trying to keep on top of it for most of the physicians is a, is a problem. And so we've pushed actually to get local, what we, we've said, fat client distributions. We want a box in their office that is able to run the software that we need it to run and do it in a timely manner. And only the physicians need this. We don't care about everybody else because everybody else doesn't have to review 30 documents a day. We, you know, I mean, maybe I, I might review 20 a day, but I'm doing it over the course of a whole day, not when I sit down all at once to try and reprove everything because this is the first time I've gotten today to sit at my computer. So this is an interesting thing because you could solve the problem equally well by having a dedicated set of slots on the thin client server, the the thing that's hosting the thin clients for the physicians, that's just a bit beefier. Because you think about it, the server should be very physically close to the database server and the document server that's hosting all of this data. Mm -hmm. And it should be running fat pipes right to it, right? It should be running 10 sure. gigabit ethernet, multiple 10 gigabit ethernet pipes to it, probably fiber, that, or even be on the same bare metal and running as different VMs talking to the SAN. So the data transfer couldn't possibly be faster from those hard drives for the document to that server. When you're talking going to the fat client, what has to happen is that fat client has to ask the server and the SAN to give it those files and they have to go through whatever pipe is available to get them to the local computer. And then the local computer renders it. And what sounds like the problem is 
the allocation at the far end at that on that um, enterprise server is not enough resources to quickly render that document. The file got to it extremely fast because it's going to be probably in the same bare metal, but the allocation of resources to that particular application aren't enough to make this business use case fast enough to be reasonable. Yeah, that, I mean, that that very well could be, but there's, I think there's some other bits in there specifically that this software was, I believe, more optimized. We're not running the most ver- the most recent version of that software. Um, it, I don't think it was optimized for a Citrix environment. And so when it accesses, it's specifically when it's accessing third-party applications, it runs into problems. And, and the physicians have noticed a dramatic decrease in time, like more than half. Like it's more than half the time for them to access a document. You you may be right that maybe if we put them on their own separate Citrix server because we already we're running two Citrix servers to support our whole department, we could ask to run a third and only put these specific users on that and that one needs to be like super mega awesome to go back to like my 12-year-old self. Yeah. Because I, th- this is this is actually a case to to sort of jog to the side a bit where the idea of the cloud comes in for those who don't know you know cloud computing you hear it all over the place in modern business and in modern it and i always like to replace the word cloud with someone else's computer because that's what it is and that's the same thing as the this idea of the thick client i mean it's kind of going back to the idea of mainframes but you should be able to allocate dynamically those resources because the thing that needs to be sent to the user for the user to respond to it is basically a video of what's going on. And we've got the latency down enough and we've got the rendering of those videos fast enough. I mean, the the hardware encoders and decoders, thanks in part to video gaming, actually, are so incredibly powerful on even simple, thin clients that you can do full resolution encoding and decoding in real time of high quality video with minimal use of the bandwidth available to you and the latency is within what is perceptible to a user that if you allocate enough resources on the server end it can solve that problem and the only reason to push towards that is then you don't have the upkeep of an expensive system physically in the physician's office which this isn't this is kind of thinking on the IT side of things that the kind of goes into that report as well the the different tiers right um, the office tier is the responsibility of IT right and mm-hmm. at least by the the guidelines and the multi-purpose tier and the medical device tier are sort of the the focus of the medical physicist and the thing that I more think about it as is the replaceability of those components that like you can swap out any desktop computer for another computer if it's got the software on it for your oncology information system, if you're not doing treatment planning on it, if you're not contouring on it, if you're not doing those sorts of things. But the moment you start getting down to, is this replaceable? You're looking at you know the, the console on the accelerator. You can't replace that with any other computer. It's gotta be that thing and it's gotta have that data on it and your PAC system and so on. So the real, if it can be immediately swapped out for any other computer, it's the domain of IT. And 
what you get from pushing towards thin clients and centralized servers is all the stuff in the department is a domain of IT now, except for the accelerator computers. And physics can focus on dealing with a central problem instead of running around everyone's computer to fix their problem with the oncology information system. You have one place you're fixing it. At the same time, one of the issues that you have when you make that transition is that you're losing control. And, and, and the balance of control and trust and communication is always important in anything, uh, particularly a relationship like personal data. Uh, <laughs> if you were to send, say, hundreds of bits of genetic code, that would be um, really difficult for you to, to trust to just anybody. Right. So in a cost constrained environment, which IT commonly is, IT is is typically not because they're not a revenue generating sector of the hospital. They don't tend to have the largest budgets. And some of them have resorted to ways of like billing different departments to represent how their value is being added. Um, What that does is that pushes people towards the minimum required hardware. That's the exact situation that we wound up with our servers. That's exactly the situation we've wound up with our desktop computers, where we have things that are 32-bit running 4 gigs of RAM right now. So when I am looking at a spreadsheet, I have a database open, I've got my email open, and I've got a second monitor running that has both my OIS and my treatment planning system up, my system will start to freeze by 11 o'clock every day. You know, so so you can see why this comes back to that relationship of the physicist being an advocate, being an application subject matter expert and saying, you know, in this case, the minimum really isn't meeting the goal because we're you we're losing that usability that we need. So anyways, that's what I want to say. I, I think that our co-contributors here, I see them jumping up and down and screaming at us. Yeah, they're lighting things on fire. The car is rolled over. <laughs> so, and, so Andrea, let me ask you a question. Did you have any thoughts? So, Sean, I want to jump on what something that you just said. You were just talking oh, about um, IT and, you know, your computer systems being slower than what you really need to do what you need to do. And I think that goes back to what you talked about in the very beginning of the podcast. And what I found is when IT started moving into more and more of the places in our department... I almost took this attitude that they're the enemy. They're this invader that's coming in and like I have to push them out and figure out a way to like defend my territory and keep my stake in it, which I think there's part of that going on. But I think part of it is like, like you said in the beginning, you have to know the names of your IT people. You have to um, be aware that they're not the enemy. Like we used to be an island and we're not. We have to understand where they're coming from a little bit, um, what their fears are and what their concerns are. And I think by doing that, you open up this, this bridge where when stuff like that's happening, you have somebody you can talk to that isn't going to just blow you off, that knows that you know what you're talking about, that knows that you have an opinion that's valid and will listen to you when you say, hey, these computers aren't good enough. So I think by having that relationship with them built up and not treating them like the outsider and the enemy, trying to be like an ally, trying to, you know, that they're our ally, they're our friend. In those kind of situations, they can really help you out instead of Sure, but again, so so one of the one of the things, especially with hardware, that I've experienced is that the cost of adding new hardware because so so on a server side, it's really easy to justify. 
So maybe that's something, you know, Nick's suggestion for our particular problem, that might be a great way for us to go about addressing it. But when we have to upgrade our own individual departmental computers, that's seen as um, a sink for our own resources because the IT department has started to bill and say, well, we can't just be everybody's everything for free. And then, you know, the end of the year comes around and we get crapped on. Um, and, and so that means that upgrading to actual computers that have, you know, at least as much RAM as the laptop I'm recording this on, <laughs> it, it's costly because you're talking about 60 systems that need to be upgraded. Well, not only that, but I don't know if yours is like ours at all, where there's like an upcharge on it for their time to get that ready and get it going. Evan's, Evan's time is worth something. Yeah. Like you can buy this Going computer back to online. knowing their names. 800 bucks. And then you get this quote from IT and it's like new computer, $2,100. I don't know. They got to pay for themselves somehow. I don't know. So, Andrew, I know that while we were talking, you started chatting about different interfaces, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on what what you were going on about. So this goes back to Nick was talking a little bit about the TG report, you know, which was written several years ago, saying that we want the authority over our machines, our clinical applications, all decisions related to the oncology information system. So my kind of thought and question about that is we use ARIA, so that's my experience. ARIA has a medical oncology platform that interfaces right in with the radiation oncology platform. So I think some of these roles that we've you know traditionally held on to get a little bit muddled because I don't really want to be involved in that. I don't really know a lot about it, like being the you know authority and the decision maker on that. So you almost have to bring someone from the outside in. And I don't know how to get around that. And I think things have just changed so much in the past, you know, nine years that I don't know if we can be that island anymore. No, I think that's absolutely right. To see it, the island idea is absolutely right. Then in many, in many ways, before computers turned into something that every department really needs for every function, not just radiation oncology, we could be on our own and untouched because we knew we had higher requirements and more difficult jobs to solve with our computer systems. And so we needed to be directly involved in that. And now the rest of the medical field is starting to be brought up to the level that radiation oncology has been in terms of the amount of data we're dealing with and how to handle that data in an electronic means. We had to, by virtue of the complexity of the treatments we were doing, we had to go to electronic charting or at least electronic methods of planning the delivery. And once you've already got the computer in there, in the clinic, it starts being used for all the things that make sense to use a computer for. And now the rest of medicine is in a way being forced into it with our high tech, but is in it nonetheless. And now everyone is nearly at the same level in terms of how much they need to have a computer to make their clinic work. I say nearly because, again, computer systems are down. We cannot treat patients, right? If we don't have the network, your machine can't open a patient and treat them for almost all of the systems that I know of. But what if you have flash drives? You cannot do that. They have, I asked, they said you cannot treat on a flash drive. You're not allowed to plug that in and load a patient from it on the machine. And it, if you try, you can't. You need to be able to get to the iDrive or the local drive. And you, it won't let you see a flash drive. 
it's just so interesting how things have changed so much in the past few years, I think. I don't think we can get away with being involved with IT anymore, and I don't think we can really lock them out, which, you know, is kind of my idea a few years ago. Like, they don't need to be in here. This is my territory. Get out. And now it's just not possible to do that, at least in our setup. I don't think it's reasonable to do that either, right? I mean, we, we are not, we don't want to be experts in all of IT. Some of us have more proficiency than others in areas of IT, and they can kind of act more as an IT role. But that's not why we're in the clinic. We're not in the clinic because we're good at IT. I mean, I feel like, I don't want to say we got away with, but I feel like we got away with a lot of things that IT would not approve of in the past. Um, like little workarounds that we did that made our, our clinic function, you know, like the the VNC viewer, that kind of thing. You know, if once IT gets a hold of that, they shut it down. Usually they don't want anything to do with that. And I feel like going forward, we're going to have to find new creative solutions to work with them. And I think sometimes that's a challenge because they have their own agenda and they have their own things they're trying to do. And so do we. And I think that's where we kind of butt heads sometimes. Are you suggesting that we become a bunch of um, white hats, Andrea? I'm not sure what what you mean by that white hat hackers versus black hat hackers i think we're we're in the gray hat hacker category sean yeah i think we're more in the gray hat we're not trying to steal the fractional parts of the penny that are thrown out with every transaction but i wouldn't say no to that showing up in my bank account it's just a different world now like there's so many threats everywhere that they're worried about that you know some of the things that might have been okay in the past just aren't anymore yeah and i think that's absolutely an area where communication is critical. And that's the experience that I had. We had the same sort of transitionary period where we were an island and then all of a sudden, an example, we had a hard drive failure on our treatment planning system. And all of a sudden, administration starts coming into this because administration is asking why the physicians are being told we can't start new patients for a week while we try and resolve this issue. And then they're asking, well, why is IT not involved in this system? And for very good reason. I mean, there are reasons that IT should have been involved in the system, but there are also reasons that they classically haven't because a vendor lockout and that if the server that's holding all the patient data is in IT's basement, then we can't actually use that system. And now we've lost one of the systems that we could use to do planning and, and all of these you know historical reasons. But the net result of this was rather than shutting down and saying, we won't work with them, this is how it must be we started a conversation and we showed them that we aren't, for lack of a better term, L users. We're not ignorant of the things that are involved in the IT side of things and that ha they are concerned about and that we're concerned about the same things. We just don't have the resources to specifically deal with them and work with them to come up with the solutions. I think that is how we worked out of that. And the end result was that I ended up as the liaison with IT. And I ended up in that role of making local clinical decisions that help and then conferring with IT for the large scale problems. I, I really would love to jump in on this. But uh, the other thing that I'd love to hear about is how research computing is, is kind of being handled and how, how groups that do a lot of that are, are integrating this. So, Allison, I was just wondering if you might be able to lend a little bit of perspective on that aspect. Oh, boy. Um, so, my lab actually has a computing committee, and I am on the social committee. 
<laughs> I'm in charge of baking cheesecake. Other people take care of our computers. But I, I, I do have... Who the hell put you on a social committee? You just said that you wanted to be, uh, what was it, antisocial? Yes, but I like to be antisocial <laughs> in my kitchen baking. Uh, but but I, I do have uh, some things to add. I actually was just at a meeting today at... Um, so, University of Wisconsin has a machine-slash-deep-learning group that meets regularly with, um, like, invited speakers or just, you know, people in the department talk about what they've been doing or, you know, do demos, kind of help really connect people in our department who are trying to do machine or deep learning, that kind of stuff, which I don't do. But I went to today's meeting, which was interesting. And one of the things that radiology has really been pushing is trying to get GPUs accessible to not everyone in the department, but people who are trying to do these, you know, computing intensive projects, which they're really expensive. And thanks, Bitcoin. Okay, I I don't know how to reply to that. Uh, And, you know, for the most part, individual labs can't afford to buy their own like deep learning machine. My lab actually does have one that has two GPUs. And uh, actually, earlier this week, we were watching it overheat remotely. (laughs) If we uh, heard the alarm go off, we knew it was our fault. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, basically, my my point is, there there definitely are people in the field who are like you guys and have a clue what's going on. And there's people like me who are like, yes, we have GPUs. And that's a thing. And that's good, because it allows us to do heavy computing. But... You know, like people in our, our lab went out and bought these things or, I guess, helped make the purchasing decisions. And if that had been me, I wouldn't have known where to start. So, you know, that's a, a great point and one that I didn't, that I think is worth bringing up that it doesn't have to be that everyone who's in a clinic or in a department or in a research group is, you know, the super computer guru. When dealing with IT, Fewer people interacting with them probably has more power because you build up more social, you know, credentials. You build up more understanding of what you're doing. I think you want just a single liaison that can talk the talk and communicate with them and convey the, the, the needs while also being able to communicate with the rest of the group. And I think that's what you're kind of hinting at, that there's, you know, some people in your group that understand this and they can make the connections with IT to solve the problem with the rest that the rest of the group has with the technology. Exactly. And I think it's a great skill that you've built up and you should put it on your resume. <laughs> well, that's an interesting problem, isn't it? Yeah. How do you convey this? Yeah. That's something that I can understand in all of this. Like, how do you, how do you communicate? Like I have this skill that's, kind of a skill and kind of, you know. So I can get you there with programming. Um, The easiest way to show someone that, because you want this for, you know, job interviews and for uh, applications for residency, let's say, if you're a student, the easiest way to show that you have these capabilities is to put it out there. For programming, if you can put your, your work up on something like GitHub and put that in your resume. Say, you know, this is my GitHub and these are the things I've done with it. Actually 
just straight up show that you have at least enough skill to understand what GitHub is. And, you know, like 70% of the people that look at your resume aren't going to know what's on there. Why does he got a link to a GitHub? But those that do will at least appreciate that you have that level of depth of understanding. That's a good point. Yeah. I wonder if, I have no idea what your resume looks like, but if one of your sub bullets under your current position were like liaison to IT department or something like that, I think that would be interesting. I mean, one of the keys to resume building is to use fancy words like liaison uh, superfluously. <laughs> so. The only other thing that I really followed in this conversation, to be honest. <laughs> so you, you guys said that you learned this stuff in residency, right? I didn't go through residency. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, you're just superhuman. Well, no, I had a, I had a pretty good, I had a pretty good mentor. I mean, there's, there's a trick with throwing people in the deep end. They sink or swim, right? Yeah, that's fair. You know, this could be another really interesting topic for us, though, because I think I was fortunate that I had some computer programming experience, and I found that to be so beneficial in the clinic. And I think going forward, that's going to become more and more important for people to have. And I'm just wondering if people are getting the training in that. I don't know if it's programming, though. Is I mean, like, so... I think it's I think it's understanding networks and interfaces. Like yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. Because I can program and I don't know. The informatics section of the residency requirements are, which are the only standards that mention computers at all. PACs and RISC systems, HL7, DICOM standards, image acquisition and from PACs, informatics. You're talking about you're talking about how the computers talk to each other. All of those things yeah. are how the computers talk to each other. So it's understanding how that network works. That's effectively what it is. I mean, except for DICOM, which is the actual storage of the information. None of those necessarily get down to the network level. So one of the things that, that I think is incredibly important is what you're saying. And that's you can look at these high level protocols for how data is stored. This is not how the computers are talking to each other. That's way down on levels two and three, right? This isn't even how these systems communicate with the PAC systems. This is talking way higher level than that. And I think you're right that physicists, if we're expected to have this role, which at least some of us in each department are expected to, you need to train them on it. So I wanted to start a course that starts down at the bearer hardware that go back to how does a transistor even function? What is a diode, right? They know that from their physics undergraduate or their physics minor equivalent of undergraduate. They should understand what a diode <laughs> is and the PN junction and then build up all the way to how does all of this build into, you know, how your oncology information system works or being able to create a Python program and being able to solve a problem with it. So, so when did they decide to move on from your lectures to SciShow Computer Science? Honestly, let's flip the classroom, right? Things like SciShow Computer Science are fantastic for that. They give you a great overview that you can watch and digest at your own pace and the thing that the classroom should give you then is the ability to synthesize that into your own words. Because I think that is when you actually learn something, when you're trying to externalize it, when you're trying to put it in a way that makes your brain think that it was its thought, right? When you try and tell someone something, you have to think it as though it's your thought to tell them it. 
So, or at least I do. And so I think that things like those crash course are fantastic for that, but then you have to turn it into something that shows output from that. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. That, that is a great resource. And I'd seriously, everyone who's listening, if you don't know the words we're saying, watch that series because it starts from bare metal starts there and then goes up to the full level of abstraction and is a great way it's a good place to start for accessibility um and i think that that is a great course to get you if you don't if you're not currently in residency or you went through a residency or a graduate program and you don't feel that you got this understanding of how computers work something like that course is fantastic and it's only like what 17 hours of your life we will link to that course. Um, so you guys were talking about how great DICOM standards are. And I was just wondering, have you ever tried to write a DICOM outside of like whatever you use for radiation oncology? What do you mean to write a DICOM? Like if you're in my MATLAB and you need to write out an RTSS or just a DICOM. Oh, DICOM. use the DICOM toolkit. It's way easier. There is a set of DICOM tools that exist for Python. Uh, PyDICOM is great Pi for that. Yeah. Um, or PyRad. PyRad does the same sort of stuff. It's got most of the same tools in it. So the entire standard exists in a published format that's freely available. But it's like 400 pages long, right? Certainly. Uh, but you don't have to understand the standard you don't need to write your own. If you want to deal with Python, you can do it in Python. It's built around a pretty simple structure. And most of the length of that document are all of the different tags and the ways that they are used. Well, I'm so, going to make the computer scientist who's trying to implement some of these tools in my lab listen to how easy you think this is. Well, he, I mean, so look, if you're doing this on a research basis, you should invest in the DICOM toolkit. So, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with that, there is no better way to do it. But I, I understand what you're trying to get at because there is a physicist in my clinic who loves um, Image J, which is based off MATLAB. And he, he uses that to great success. I cannot use that for the life of me. It's one of those really high yield, but really shallow learning curve type programs. Anyway, so so if you're if you're trying to build a DICOM header from scratch, I would not look at the standard. I would, I mean, obviously you have to have the standard. It's open source. It's fine. It is there is a lot of information depending on the imaging modality that you're using. An RT Reg standard, for example, is not that extensive. It's actually really nice the way that they designed it. It's it's pretty easy to implement. But if you're doing something like a 3D image, yeah, it's going to be a lot. But what I would do is I would start from the solved problem that it is and pump out a DICOM header and take a look at the DICOM toolkit and say, how can I use the toolkit to modify what is already made to build what I need to build? Because otherwise, you're just trying to reinvent the wheel for literally nothing. I don't think the header is the issue. I think the header or the uh, there's something with the RTSS that lesions like end up on the wrong side of the body and stuff. Not in my, my work is perfect, but so some other lab mates of mine have been having issues. So this is obviously a huge subject. 
I mean, dealing with the interaction of two entire fields of study of information technology and medical physics and not just just focused on radiation oncology. It's complicated enough. So we have so much more to, to consider with this, but we have to end it at some point. And I think we'll, the points that we've hit seem to be the most, uh, at least ones that were hit by the, the task group. And hopefully the task group will start to look at things for radiology. And hopefully we'll be able to come back and look at how it, uh, you'd consider medical physics and radiology imaging side and, and interactions with IT and spend a bit more time on the research side, which I think has a lot more to, to speak to. Yeah, I mean, this whole field has has really transformed. It continues to transform. Uh, and it, and it, it's a messy process and everybody finds a slightly different way. And so what I'd really like to hear is I'd like to hear how you, this is, is going on in your clinic. So Andrew, do you have any, any things that you want to hear specifically? I just really wanted to say not to plug Reddit again, but I have some things that I'm really interested in hearing about from other people. Um, how involved is your IT in what you're doing? How, what do they have control over? What do you maybe not have control over that you think you should have control over? How do they interface with the department? What complaints do you have? What success stories do you have? Anything like that. Um, I think the more that we can share of that, the better off we'll all be. So. I'd also really like to hear from people who feel like they have a super user in their department. So whether that's a physicist or a dosimetrist or a physician, somebody who knows the ins and outs way better than you ever will. Um, and how that person has impacted how your clinic has treated different problems. I'd love to hear from people who, who've dealt with that. So, yeah. So, so with that, I mean, we could go on for quite a while. So, so go over, go over to Reddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash hormesis podcast. Um, interact with the community. I know you've got to make a, an account. You can't be a lurker anymore. I gave it up for a good reason. It's, it's okay. It's actually not too bad. Um, I unlurked so that I could share my computer technology woes. Yeah. Nick only accesses Reddit through a Tor browser, so you can't track him. Anyways, we really appreciate you taking some time to listen to us. Come over to Reddit, share your, share your feedback, uh, send us your topic suggestions. We really appreciated all the ones that we got. We're going to work those in. And if we, we can't make a full episode out of them, they're going to be our intro. So, you know, just random thoughts you have, let us know what you want to hear. And with that, thank you so much. This has been Sean and Nick, Andrea and Allison. Good night and good luck. (laughs) 